Job chapter 26 is where we turn this morning. Job 26 is the final response that Job offers to his friends. Thankfully, the friends are all done speaking. They have done their best, and if you don't mind, their worst, to Job and encouraged him in so many different respects to repent of the sin that obviously is his because, again, their false assumption going forward and what Job himself shared to some degree was that suffering follows sin, that because Job is suffering, therefore he is a great sinner. And again, Job is suffering to a degree or an extent that is just phenomenal. It's extraordinary, the amount of of destitution uh, from the, the great heights of which Job had ascended through various means. Now he is at the lowest of low. He is in an ash heap outside the city and just having lost everything, lost his children, lost his health. He is there sitting, bemoaning his fate. And his friends come to comfort him saying, well, you're just a great sinner, Job. That's that's the reason you're, you're doing all this, which kind of goes on this other corollary truth that they would ad- adhere to. Blessing follows piety. Blessing, oh, if you would just repent, if you would just become a pious person, seek after God, he will restore that fortune to you. He will just heap blessings on your head. You won't even know what to do with it all. And so that is the the rubric, that's the law that they are uh, operating by, and that's the whole way that they view this world, this whole whole existence, whole creation operates according to this rule, which is an inviolable rule. It cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. And they even say to Job, Job, you're trying to change creation just to bend to your situation. Just confess that you're a sinner and it'll be fine. But the question is, well, wait a minute. If their their rule, if their law is all about sin that causes suffering and piety or or religiosity and not in a pompous way, but in a true, you know, fearing God kind of way, if that precedes or is the basis for blessing, then then wait a minute, how do, how do you solve the issue of sin then? It can't just be by repentance, because if it could be by repentance, then, well, salvation's in our hands, and we can do whatever we want to do. If, if you know, if we can, we can sin and we can repent, and, and God is bound, he is, he is bound to this rule, right? Well, yeah, I sinned, and you, you caused me to suffer, but I am pious now, I'm trusting you, and so you need to give me blessing. And so, in other words, everything the friends have said ties God's hands behind his back, and he is not able to act according to his own prerogative, according to his own omniscience. He is not able to act according to his own power. His omnipotence, his all-powerfulness is restricted. And Job says, you better be careful, you guys. What you're saying is not true about God, and God is going to come and examine you, and how will you fare in that day? I know my conscience is clear before God, but as for you, I am worried for you. I am troubled for you. So we come to this chapter 26, realizing that all the friends have spoken, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, and three different cycles of, of repetition they've gone through. And thankfully, Bildad, we looked at last week, had had his last shot at Job and his response now, Job's response here in chapters 26 through chapter 31, if you don't mind. And if you've studied Job at all, you realize this this section of, of chapters, 26 through 31, is greatly debated, greatly... Um, how do you even say? Try to, they're trying to solve a problem that isn't a problem by saying, well, wait a minute, Zophar didn't have his third speech. Where's Zophar's speech? Good grief. Somehow it's been uh, absconded with, you know, taken, stolen, and put under Job's words. Well, we've got to figure out where is Zophar's last speech? It's got to be here somewhere. And what about, wait a minute, if this is coming from the mouth of Job, Job is sounding a lot like his friends when he says this, and so certainly this must be Zophar's last speech, and, and so this. And by the way, chapter 28, what's this about? This, this sounds so serene, so meditative, so contemplative. That can't be coming from Job. Job is this one who, who is speaking out of the full vent of his distress and his anger and his uh, bitterness of soul that he's talked about. So Job can't be this reasoned fellow that we read about in chapter 28. If you don't mind my saying, I'm just going to cut to the chase and say, this is all Job's words. This is all Job speaking from chapter 26 to 31. And he is the one who says all these things. It seems like a paradox because, again, he is struggling with so many different things. We've talked about the timing of this whole event uh, from Job 1 to 42. When did it all happen? And we don't really know, other than the fact that from, from the calamities, the distresses, the sufferings that Job endured at the beginning, chapters 1 and 2, uh, until... <clears throat> 
the end of chapter 2, when the friends come, there's some measure of time, days, weeks, perhaps a month or two between that time for the friends to hear about the calamity that had befallen their friend and for them to organize a, a journey to be with him. And so once we get, though, to chapter 3, when Job has his first bitter lament till chapter 42, it probably happens rather quickly. The timing, it could even happen in one day. Again, these, these speeches are, are long, but they're not overly long. Uh, you can read them uh, in a, within an hour. I'm not even sure how long it would take to read these, these different speeches. And so you realize that, wow, a lot of things have happened in the course of, of chapter, 30, chapter 3 to, to this chapter, and then by the time we get God on the scene in chapter 38. Wow, uh, just a tremendous amount of things have happened. And so we realize, we see, by the way, that the friends, their mindset, their worldview is firm. It did not shift or, or change. You know, Job is appealing to them. He's saying, you don't, your model does not fit this other evidence that we see. If you don't see it, well, ask a lot of people that travel around and see things that don't fit within your, your, your structure. Your, your structure doesn't work. <clears throat> it doesn't account for all the exceptions. I'm an exception to what you're saying. And they say, no, no, no. What we're saying is true. And Job, you're just, you're proud, you're arrogant, you're pompous, you're, you're full of wind, you're, you're just stop talking would be your wisdom. And Job says, no, you stop talking. And so you, you get to see the argument that's not going anywhere between the two, <clears throat> the two parties. And so we get to the point, though, Job does change quite a bit from his chapter 3 when he says, I remember this questions, why was I ever born? Why am I still alive? Um, there was a third question. I forget what it is now. But he, he just basically laments his whole life. And he says, this is horrible. This is bad. But by the time he gets to, well, even chapter 9 and chapter 19, he has great moments of faith in God. He says, somehow, I've got to have God and man reconciled. Some, somebody who can lay hold of God and somebody who can lay hold of man and bring them together and make peace. I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know how this, this is going to work, but that's what has to happen to solve my problem. Because I can't argue directly with God, even though I want to, and he would just overpower me and be all ominous before me and, and frighten me after death, if not to death. And I, I want to, because I have a clear conscience before him. But by the time we get to, especially chapter 28, we see, whoa, Job has has come a long way. Now he'll come back in chapters 29 to 31 and defend himself again, but it's all for the purpose. I have a clear conscience. I know what I, I know I'm a sinner, but I have dealt with my sin before God. I'm looking for him. I'm looking to him for everything. And so we, again, we get to chapter 26, his response to Bildad that celebrates his knowledge of God's power. God's power is on display here in chapter 26. It is a, as one person said, one of the grandest recitals in the whole book, this, this hymn of praise to God. It is excelled only by the Lord's speeches as is fitting. It sounds well in Job's mouth and ends the dialogue like the first movement of a symphony with great crashing chords. This telling uh, display of God's power in creation, especially, paves the way for what God argues in chapters 38 to 41, his strength in creation, his omniscience in creation. Well, first of all, he has to answer Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz. You guys are no help. You know, verse 2 says, well, Job answered and said, verse 1, What a help you are to the one without power, you, how you have saved the arm without strength, what counsel you've given to one without wisdom, what sound wisdom you have abundantly made known. He's not praising them. He's mocking them. He says, yeah, you're just so, str you're so strong. You, you have no power to help those with no power. So what help is that? You have no uh, salvation for those who have no strength to save themselves. You have no counsel to save those who need counsel. And your wisdom, it's on display, but it's a zero. It it's, profits nothing. You've just poured out word after word after word. But he says, to whom have you declared words and whose breath comes out from you? He's saying, you are no help at all to me and others, but where do you get your knowledge anywhere? Did, where did you get your knowledge? What is the source or the authority for your expressions, your confident expressions of, of uh, solution, of reality? Because it doesn't, doesn't make any sense. It's kind of foolish. And when you question somebody, I mean, it's kind of like say, saying to somebody, hey, where'd you get that idea? Really dismissing the whole thing and dismissing the person saying that's just foolish and, and just dumb. What are you even arguing that for? It's not helpful. Instead, he says, let me tell you what's helpful. 
God. God who displays his immense power over creation. This wonderful hymn of praise, beginning in verse 5, recognizes God's power over several realms of creation. First, he lists the deep. He says, the departed spirits tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Naked is Sheol before him, and Abaddon is, has no covering. God is sovereign over the things we don't even know about. Where the departed spirits are, we don't see them. You know, pardon the reference to uh, Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, who celebrates, you know, it's a ghost story of Christmas, right? And so he celebrates, or, or one of the key devices in his story is the departed spirits that are just traversing around earth. Well, that's not where they are. They are in Sheol, in Abaddon. The Sheol is the place, Abaddon is the supernatural power, if you don't mind uh, uh, protecting or sheltering that place. But God is powerful over all these things. By the way, it says the departed spirits tremble under the waters in that kind of ancient Near East cosmology or thinking about the world. They said that the entrance gate to Sheol is at the bottom of the sea. It is under the waters. And so God says, look, or Job says, God is over these things. They ha- these, these places have no covering. For, in other words, God sees everything going on there. It's not hidden from him. He, it is open before him. It's, there's nothing uh, withdrawing God's uh, power to be displayed in the deep. He is sovereign over death, in other words. In verse 7 and following says that he is powerful over what happens on the surface of the earth and even beyond that. He, verse 7, stretches out the north over what is formless and hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, and the cloud does not break out under them. He obscures the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. He has marked a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. This is God who is on display over these wonderful aspects of creation, both on the earth and outside the earth, where he is doing so many wonderful things. He says he stretches out the north. The north can be a direction. Uh, usually it's a direction. When we think of the north, we think of that way. But when, when used in scripture a few times, and perhaps here as well, when he's speaking of the north, he's speaking in a a spatial sense, or what he's talking about, the high heavens themselves, where the place of God's throne, he stretches out his throne, you could say, or stretches out the heavens over what is formless and hangs the earth on nothing. He's talking big picture here. God is powerful over all these things. You could just jot down some examples of that reference to the north. Psalm 48 and verse 2 Talks about uh, the talks about Jerusalem, the heavenly, or excuse me, the earthly Jerusalem, but also the heavenly Jerusalem, perhaps beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great King. Well, Mount Zion is, uh, in terms of a direction, is not in the far north. In fact, if you looked at the map over there, you see the Dead Sea, that long uh, cylindrical uh, sea, and you look. From the top of it to the to the west of it or to the left of that, right in the middle of the hill country, that's Jerusalem. It's not in the far north in a lot of respects, but it is in Job's respect or in the in the psalmist's perspective, not just directionally but spatially. It is the throne of God. It is the place where God Himself is enthroned in the heavens. And you think, well, wait a minute, in the heavens? Yes. Another reference: Isaiah fourteen verses thirteen and fourteen. The words of Satan the Lucifer, that one who uh, wanted to become like God, wanted to be God, he said, I will ascend to heaven. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. And above the heights of the clouds, I'll make myself like the most high. So when we talk about the north here, it could well be heaven itself. And he says, heaven is stretched out over what is formless and hangs on nothing. He hangs the earth on nothing. So much cosmology is is displayed in these verses, which God himself will return to in in terms of how God is active in creation. In fact, one distinction here, Job focuses more on the the non-organic non-organic elements of creation, the earth, the the seas, the the heavens, um, land, all these different things. Whereas when God speaks in chapters 38 and following, he focuses on the animals. And he says, let me tell you, I know all about the animals, and I am powerful even, the most, even over the most powerful of animals. The things that you would, would shudder at and, and be frightful of, that's nothing. It would, be, it would be a terrible shock to you to try to wrestle with, with a behemoth or, or leviathan, but nothing. It's not a problem to me. I am omnipotent. 
So we see a second aspect, God's power over the deep, verses 5 and 6, over the surface, or over all creation, really, in verses 7 through 10. He talks about, again, the, the face of his throne. Yeah, this, he marked a circle on the surface of the waters. This verse, by the way, verse 10, is used a lot of times by those who would maintain or suppose a flat earth, that talking about the the surface of the waters, the circle of the surface of the waters. That, oh, well, I mean, the earth is flat, right? It's a, it's a flat sphere or flat circle, right? Not a sphere. No, this idea of a circle is that horizon. We would call it a horizon. We would call it something that is demarcating, he says here, a boundary between light and darkness. It, is, it casts, in other words, a, a curved line on the face of the earth. It is evidence that the earth is a sphere, not a, a flat surface, because it's not a straight line. It's a curved line uh, that uh, God displays over, over his earth. A third aspect of God's immense power in verse 11 says that he is powerful over even the foundation of the earth. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. Everything that the heaven is set upon, these pillars of heaven, which we say, what is that? How does that even, how do we understand that? We can't understand it, but God knows it and he understands it. And he has powerful over it. When he rebukes, they are astonished, which kind of means, doesn't just kind of mean, it means that they are just shaken to the core. We have, by the way, Hebrews is it chapter 10? Is that where it is? Talking about the unshakable kingdom. We have an unshakable kingdom. With this, this present kingdom, this present world, it'll be shaken and, and, uh, and just melt away. But God's own unshakable kingdom lasts forever. This thing, when God rebukes this creation, his power is on display through that, and he will be honored, and his will will be accomplished. A last aspect of his power in verses 12 and 13. He is powerful over the spiritual forces. God subdues evil. What does he subdue evil? Verse 12 says, He quieted the sea with his power, and by his understanding he crushed Rahab. By his breath the heavens are made beautiful, his hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Have you ever been out on the open sea at all? Have you ever been out where the waves and the wind and the ominosity, if that's the proper, I don't know if that's a noun or not, but to, to realize, whoa, this is so powerful. I can't, you know, you look over the edge of the boat and there's nothing down there except lots of water. And these waves come and you don't know, you don't know what's even following your ship or your boat. You know, it could be, what is Moby Dick, right, David? You've been listening to that. It could be, you don't even know what's all going on there. But God is powerful over these things and he can quiet the sea by his power. He can make it calm. I mean, something that is so just tossed and turning and everything, no problem. By the way, haven't we seen that? The disciples of Jesus thought they were going to die on the, on the Sea of Galilee, the one to the north over there. Uh, it's not a huge sea. You can see from one end to the other, but when the wind comes on, the waves get built up, you will die. Lots of people died on the little Sea of Galilee. And yet Jesus, with the word, quieted, hush, be still. And it was. The wind died down. The waves just calmed. God has power over these wonderful things. But even isn't even just the physical things. It's the supernatural powers behind that. When he talks about uh, Rahab, he's talking about a spiritual force behind it, a, a worker of chaos and evil and animosity toward God. And this fleeing serpent is going to appear again with under the name Leviathan. We've seen him already in this in this text. But it is that supernatural force behind this this chaos or this anti-God work. And he says, look, when God speaks, he makes everything beautiful. He does. Ecclesiastes. He makes everything beautiful in his time. His hand has pierced. What, wait a minute. His hand is pierced. You try to pierce a fleeing serpent with your hand? I don't know if you're not trained in karate or martial arts. You couldn't do that uh, because this guy is just, he has scales and all this. Thing. God's hand, no problem, pierces this fleeing serpent. God has power over all these things. And yet, there's a deeper wisdom than all this. There's something beyond even this great supernatural power. Job says in verse 14, Behold, these are the fringes of his ways. These are just the, the barest essential, or not even essential, just extreme. Uh, you, you look kind of at a, from a distance and you say, Oh, that's what I see. These are the fringes of his ways. And how only with a whisper of a word do we hear of him? But his mighty thunder, who can understand? This is, to say, somebody said it, at best a human being catches only a glimpse of God's marvelous ways. There is more, in other words, to who God is than he has put on display in creation. There is enough, 
Romans 1 would teach us there is enough in creation to know there is a God, that he is, he is there, he is righteous, he is good, he is ordered. There's so many things we can learn about God just by evaluating, analyzing, examining creation. But there is, I mean, that's just the, the barest. I mean, if you were to look at a, a infinite book and our knowledge of God would be that, that thick, right? I mean, it's just not much at all. These are the fringes of his ways on display. And when he puts himself on full display, whoa, what? What a tremendous demonstration of his majestic power. Again, this is Job responding or challenging the very, very simplistic, very neat, very, very ordered system of the friends that know suffering follows sin, blessing follows piety, and that's just how it goes, and God is bound to this, and we're bound to this, and everything fits within that paradigm, both in the moral world and in the physical world. Everything fits within that that paradigm. And Job says, you guys are out of your mind. You don't know what you're talking about. Have you seen what he just listed? The deep, the surface, the foundation, these spiritual forces. God is powerful over all those things, and your system does not accommodate anything near to what we see in reality. Job switches, uh, or continues, I guess, in chapter 27. He continued to lift up his discourse and said these things. He goes back to declare his innocence here at the beginning of this chapter, verses 2 through 6. He says, look, I am innocent. I have a clear conscience before God. I have done nothing to warrant all this distress, all this calamity that has befallen me. Your solution, these friends, your solution does not help me one bit because it doesn't explain God's justice toward me. It doesn't explain how uh, this, how it, your, your system just is inconsistent with what I'm experiencing. And it, and it is, does not match with how God has revealed himself to be as a just and holy God. He says in verse 2, that and this is an oath he is calling on god himself if you don't mind to testify against himself he puts god on trial if you don't mind and he says my justice has to be satisfied by god himself god lives who has removed my justice and the almighty who has embittered my soul for as long as breath is in me and the spirit of from god is in my nostrils my lips certainly will not speak unrighteousness nor will my tongue utter deceit so he calls God as his witness. He calls God as the one who must bear the, the responsibility for proving his innocence. It's very similar to uh, this, this phrase, by, or as God lives, or as uh, by the life of God. It would read uh, straightforwardly. It reminds us of a, uh, a, an oath, I guess, that Joseph, back in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 42, when Joseph was challenging his brothers to prove that who they were and the father and all that thing. And he said, as the, or by, rather, by the life of Pharaoh, this is how it should happen. So he goes right to the top. Right? He's number two in the kingdom, but going to Pharaoh, he says, as Pharaoh lives, this is how it's going to happen. And you know, Pharaoh lives forever, right? He's the eternal God and all that nonsense. But he says, look, this is this is a serious charge. This is an oath that I am invoking God to come down. He's got to be my justice. He's removed justice, but only in the sense God has not dealt unjustly with him. It's just that where is God? If this is the system, right, and blessing follows piety, I am a pious person. Where is justice? Where is God's justice? It's not here yet. I haven't heard anything from God. We are going to hear from him in just a moment, though, what God says. But he is the one, Job says, who has embittered my soul. And he says, as long as I'm alive, you know, as long as breath is in me, the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will no way speak unrighteousness, unrighteousness nor my tongue utter deceit. What's he saying there? He's saying, I'm not going to confess sins I've not committed. That's foolishness. You, you're charging me with all these things. Remember, Eliphaz said, you're you this, you abuse the poor, you do all these nasty, wicked things. Shame on you, Job. Job says, you're making it up. I've not done any of those things. I'm not going to confess things that I haven't done. I'm not going to speak unrighteously. I'm not going to contrive sins just so I can confess them before God so he can forgive me. There's nothing to forgive. I've already dealt with these sins. It's not to say that, again, he's not claiming sinlessness, perfection. He's claiming whatever sins of, of commission, omission, of thought, word, deed, I confess before God. Remember Job 1 and 5, 1 verse 5, when he offered sacrifices for his kids. How much more would he do that for himself? Even if the, there was a, a suggestion or a hint of any kind of sin. He's very concerned with dealing with sin by means of sacrifice. And by the time we get to the end of the book, 
Job is going to be offering sacrifices, but not for himself. You can read ahead if you want to, but realize that sacrifice is the way that sins are atoned for and covered. He says, verse uh, 3, I believe, or 4 maybe, Far be it from me that I should declare you right till I breathe my last, I'll not remove my integrity from me. And you think, well, wait a minute, Job, you're, you're claiming things. You're, aren't you kind of getting a little self-righteous there? Well, yes, perhaps. And by the time we get to chapter 31, maybe there is a little bit of self-righteousness going on there. You're declaring himself right. But wait a minute. He's just agreeing with God. Chapter 1, verse 1. Hey, there was this guy, or guy in the land of Uz. His name was Job. And he was blameless and righteous, fearing God, turning away from evil. That phrase, that whole phrase is repeated later in the chapter. By God's own mouth, he says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He is blameless and righteous and turning away from, excuse me, God-fearing and turning away from evil. God repeats it again in chapter 2, verse 9, 8 or 9. And he says, this is, this is my servant Job. And in chapter 2, he says he still holds fast his integrity. It sounds like God is endorsing that. He still, hey, Satan, you've tried to destroy him or, or set my hand against Job for nothing, and he still has his integrity. This is a good thing, in other words, to hold fast your integrity, have a clear conscience before God, to say, look, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need to be reconciled to God, but I have done all that I should before him, and I have realized that, boy, I need God's help. I need God's salvation in my life, and that is what Job had claimed so many different times. And he says, look, my blamelessness is a result of my fear of God and my turning away from evil. I am a blameless person. I will maintain my integrity. I, ha- I hold fast my righteousness, will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me any of my days. So again, the power of a clear conscience. Paul, the apostle, had, apostle Paul had that. He talked about a clear conscience before God in his defense before um, Festus, well, Felix, I think, and Festus, he both had that, that claim to a clear conscience before God. I serve God with a clear conscience. He says that again in, I think, it's 2 Timothy chapter 1, having the power of a clear conscience. It's a big thing, a big deal to, to say there's nothing I know that condemns me before God. I, anything that was in my life, I've confessed before God, and I continually turn away from evil. I don't want anything to do with that in my life. And so he's very clear. I am innocent. But... He kind of changes thoughts. And this is where some people say, oh, this sounds like Zophar. This, this, what he's saying here, verses 7 and following, that kind of sounds like Zophar. It's not. Job is calling down an imprecation or a curse. He's, he's calling down the judgment that, that the friends say should befall Job or, or has befallen Job. No, that's going to go on my opponents, my enemies who claim things that are wrong about me and about God. God will judge the wicked. God will judge the enemies. Verse uh, 7, he says, May my enemy... Well, wait a minute, who's Job's enemy? Well, very specifically, the three friends that he's been talking with these last hours or however long it's been. "May May my enemy be as the wicked and the one who rises against me as the unjust. For what is the hope of the godless when he's cut off, when God requires his soul? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call on God at all times? This is a statement of great reproach against God's, or Job's rather, enemies, that they are the ones who have accused Job of of wrongdoing, and Job is not guilty, not at all guilty of these things. And so the very punishment that the, the opponents, the enemies, are wishing upon Job, he says, no, may that punishment fall back on their heads. We see a very clear example of that in Daniel chapter 6. Remember the, those evil, nasty guys who were plotting evil against Daniel, that they could, he was a man of integrity, blamelessness, walking fear, fear, fearlessly of man and fearfully before God all his days. They couldn't find anything wrong with him in his politics. And it, well, they didn't agree with him, but they, they couldn't accuse him of anything wrong except hmm, Maybe in relation to his religion, maybe in relation to his worship of God, can we do something that would somehow, we could use his, his worship of God as a means to get the king against him. And you know how that, you can read Daniel 6, the lion's den, all that kind of stuff. Daniel was saved, but the very punishment the enemies wanted to happen to Job fell on their heads. Or if you don't mind, they fell on their heads. And all their wives and children, wow, their whole households were cast into the lion's den. 
And that's what Job is saying. May the punishment that they want to inflict upon me come upon them. And will God hear his, their cry when distress comes upon him? No, they, won't. they give no thought to God. They, they give lip service to God, these friends do. But they don't know the God of the Bible. They, okay, that's a little anachronistic, right? We don't have the Bible. This wasn't written by the time of Job, at the time of the patriarchs. But they, they refused to recognize the truths that Job was sharing with them. This instruction that Job had offered time and time again they said, no, we're not going to call upon God. You call upon God because you're in the wrong with him. We're in the right with God. We, we, we're doing fine. No, says, look, you, you'd better, but he's not going to listen to the voice of proud, arrogant people. Let me instruct you. Verses 11 and 12, I will instruct you in the power of God. Uh, what is with the Almighty, I will not conceal. Behold, all of you seen it. Why then do you speak with utter vanity? You, you're making stuff up. You, uh, you better listen to me. And Job has said this before because that's what the friends say to each other. Listen to me, Job. I'm the one speaking words of counsel and all this. And Job says, you're full of hot air. No, you're full of hot air, Job, and you need to listen to us. And I just, Job says, look, at the end, I'm going to tell you about the power of God. And that which is with, it's a substantive idea, what is with God, I'll not hide from you. I will not conceal it from you. I'm going to put it on display Behold, all of you have seen it, but you will not incorporate God's power, his inscrutable power, into your little, your little tidy system, your little rubric. You've seen it. Why do you speak with utter vanity? All your words are empty. They have nothing, nothing to do. Let me tell you, Job says, he goes on, let me tell you what's going to happen to the wicked. Those who refuse to acknowledge God, who refuse to admit their fault before him, those who refuse to acknowledge God's reality, his truth, let me tell you what's going to happen. First, he refers to their fate in verse 13. This is the portion. This is the allotment. This is the saved little aspect. This has their name on it. This is the portion of a wicked man from God and the inheritance which the ruthless receive from the Almighty. What should they expect? This is what God has, has reserved for those who disobey him and hate him. What is it? Verse 14 and 15 say their families are going to be destroyed. Though his sons are many, they are destined for the sword and his offspring will not be satisfied with bread. His survivors will be buried because of the plague, and their widows will not be able to weep. This is a great distress that befalls them. Their sons are many. Remember, Job himself had seven sons. All of them died. His three daughters died. But even more so, those who are wicked. Job wasn't wicked, but he says, may their sons, even if there are many, they're going to be killed by the sword. His offspring will not be satisfied with bread. They're going to be poor, impoverished, die an untimely death. His survivors will be buried because of the plague. Their widows will not be able to weep. Widows is in a, in a plural sense. Does that mean these guys are married more than, to, more than one woman? It can mean that, possibly, but probably it says those, whom, those who are left behind after the wicked man dies, they're, gonna, they're not going to be able to weep. There's just so, many, so much distress and destruction coming upon them. Can't even weep for these whole, all this distress. Verses 16 and 17, what's going to happen to the wicked? Loss of wealth. Gonna lose everything. Though he piles up silver like dust and prepares garments as plentiful as the clay, he may prepare it, but the righteous will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. This is one of those chiastic structures. It starts with silver, it ends with silver in the middle. There's these garments, the clothing that he talks about here. And he says there's going to be a, turn, a turnabout, a, a change in their fortunes. They, they gather up all this like dust, right? They gather up all this silver, very precious, very wonderful, wealthy stuff, and all the clothing that, that they can gather as well, plentiful as the clay. But let me tell you who's going to enjoy it. The righteous will wear it, and the innocent will divide that silver. The wicked man will have no benefit from these things. Verses 18 and 19 talk about the loss of security. What's the fate of the wicked? They have no security, no confidence in the day of anything. He's built his house like, a moth, like the moth. Very fragile, very much can be broken down, torn apart, or as a hut which the watchman has made. A hut, a temporary booth. A, 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 in fact, that's the word, booth. We, we don't do it, but our Jewish neighbors celebrate Sukkot or uh, the Feast of Booze in the autumn time, and they build a, a, a hut, a little booth out in the, um, in the yard or whatever, one of the qualifications to make a hut is you have to be able to see the stars through the ceiling, whatever kind of ceiling you have. So it's not a structure that's, you know, you know stable, that can endure storms and stuff. That's what the house of the wicked is like. They will have no security. He lies down rich, but never again. He opens his eyes, and it is no longer. The question is, he lies down rich, but he doesn't, there's two different ways you could take this verse. Either he doesn't wake up, 
uh, he, in, in other words, he opens his eyes, but he's dead, no longer there. Or he opens his eyes, but where did my wealth go? Kind of remind you of that proverb that says, don't set your hope on riches. That's First Timothy 6, but also Proverbs that says, uh, it will surely take flight like an eagle and fly away. So don't store up those things. Don't put your whole hope in that. Verses 20 and 21, terrors of death. What's the fate of the wicked? Terrors of, of death come upon them. Terrors overtake him like many waters. A tempest steals him away in the night. The east wind carries him away and he goes and whirls away from his place. Just nasty, horrible, ruinous, fearful things that are just ominous and always thinking about what's going to happen. Where's the destruction coming from? And then finally, scorn. The very thing that Job is enduring, the scorn, the hate of all the people, is going to fall upon them. They will, it will hurl at him without sparing. He will surely try to flee from its power. Men will clap their hands at him and will hiss him from his place. Scorn, derision, shame, anger, mocking, all the things against these people. And so Job says, look, I know that wickedness will be punished, but not always in this life. I know that God will deal justly, but when is he going to do it? What's his methodology? What's his means? Here are some things that you can expect as wicked people, but who knows how God is going to bring down the wicked in his time. I hate to say quickly, but chapter 28 is Job's comment on wisdom. And let me just briefly, I want to get through a couple main ideas and one last idea in this chapter, and we'll be done. It, it, Job presents an analogy. And this, by the way, these opening verses of chapter 28, is really the only testament in the scriptures regarding mining operations. And you think, mining operations? Yeah, hunting for gold and silver and, and precious stones and emeralds and, and the gemstones and things. This is where it's celebrated. This is where it's talked about. We read about gold and silver and those precious stones all throughout Old and New Testaments. But we see here, wow, that is a difficult process. The whole thing, trying to find these things, and then what do you do when you find it? What do you, how, do you, how do you work with it? The, uh, there is a difficult search, but it's a valuable treasure. Look at this. And this, he's talking about very physically. When you're looking for gold, there's a mine for silver, a place where they refine uh, for a place where they refine for gold, iron is taken from the dust and copper smelted from rocks. So we list four different metals, silver, gold, iron, and copper, which are spoken of earlier. Deuteronomy talks about that, that in their hills you can mine copper and, and take iron from them. And he, he goes on and discusses the great lengths which men go through to, to find these things. Men put in, man puts an end to darkness to the farthest limit. He searches out the rock in thick darkness and shadow death. He sinks a shaft far from habitation, forgotten by the foot. They hang and swing to and fro for men. So he's talking about the mines, the tunnels, the caverns that they make to get these, these precious things. He gives the contrast there in where he says, The earth from it comes food, and underneath it is overturned as fire couple things could be going on there. One thing is, you know, we see things on the earth and that's where we grow food. It's, you know, it's relatively easy. I understand there's a curse and there's a curse on Adam and thorns and thistles and stuff will grow. But compared to mining for ore and stuff underground, boy, I'd rather be a farmer, right, than to be a miner trying to do this. And when you go just a little bit below the earth, you can find things that are overturned. And again, this has two different ways. Overturned with fire. One sense is that the fire, the intense heat and pressure under the surface of the earth makes these wonderful gemstones and and beautiful things that we can then harvest. And so there's that idea. Another idea is that when the miners were going uh, through their their tunnels and... and, uh, you know, they didn't have the, the nice implements that we have, even the drills that, that we can have to go through the rock or these big, they had hand tools and, and the, the privileges of fire. And so it could be that there's some attestation about this in the, in the writings, that they would light a fire at the base of a wall of, of rock or get the rock good and hot and then pour water against it and it would crack, right? And then they'd gather those stones and take them out and, and look for the ore and then refine the ore. So there's, that, there's a couple of different ideas that what could be going on here in uh, that verse. But then, it's, then he goes on and says, look, this is what they're looking for, rocks. Uh, its rocks are the source of sapphires and its dust contains gold. A couple of things going on there I don't have time to, to get through, but they're looking for these treasures. And he says, look, the, pat, the, the bird of prey that has such excellent vision, they, can't, they don't know where it is. They don't have the knowledge of where that treasure is, and they don't even care. Can I eat it? Can I, can I feed it to my young people? Then I don't care about it. So they have no interest in these sapphires, the gold, silver, iron, copper. 
they, they can't even see where it is. The proud beasts, these, these lions even, they have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. So intense sight doesn't profit anybody. Intense strength, that doesn't help you at all either. The animal world, in other words, doesn't appreciate, doesn't care for these treasures that man seeks after. Man goes to great extent, extents or lengths, rather, to find these things. He sends his hand forth to the flint. He overturns the mountains at the base. Another kind of analogy of using that fire and water method to break apart the rock. Uh, he breaks out channels through the rocks, and his eye sees anything precious. He dams up the streams from flowing, and what is hidden he brings out to the light. He just uses all these great works and machines and everything to, to, to get the stuff out. I mean, the, again, the, it's a difficult search, but oh, it is valuable. Look at all this stuff. Well, wait a minute. Are we looking for pre precious treasure? What kind of precious treasure would really last and be helpful to us? Let me tell you about wisdom. Verse 12 says, But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Okay, yeah, gold and silver and all this stuff, that's kind of nice to have, but ultimately, what does that profit anybody? You can gain the whole, whole world, but forfeit your soul because you don't have wisdom. You don't know how to live. You don't know how to live before God. But where can wisdom be found? People go to great lengths to find all these treasures, but the greatest treasure is wisdom. Where do you, where do you find it? Man does not know its worth, and it's not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, I don't have it. It's not with me. Somebody compared it to talking with somebody, and you get a, just a blank look. Wisdom? Never heard of it. Not with me. Have no idea. Wait a minute. We're looking for this thing. and We probe to the depths of the earth to find these material treasures, right, the, the precious metals and gemstones, but where is wisdom? I can't dig for it. I can't find it. It's not in the land of the living. Oh, well, maybe it's in the land of the dying. No, right, the deep, the sea, when I, that cosmology, that thought of the departed spirits. No, wisdom is incomparably valuable, and we must find it. And he gives these eight or ten, I forget how many different wonderful, precious things here, gold, cannot be given in place of it, nor can silver be weighed by it as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir and precious onyx or sapphire. Gold or glass cannot meet its worth, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned, and the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot meet its worth, nor can it be valued in pure gold. In other words, it can't buy wisdom. Although, right, the proverb says, buy wisdom. Don't exchange it for anything else. But in, in an, an ultimate sense, you, you cannot buy it with that. You can expend it. You can, you can give it to try to get you closer to that, that uh, uh, re revelation or realization of the wisdom. But you can't buy it. You've got to give everything, right? The pearl of great price, Jesus talks about. It is Christ himself. We'll see in just a moment that wisdom is, resides in him. Wisdom does not come the, from the living or the dead, verses 20 and 22, 20 through 22. Wisdom doesn't come from these. Uh, excuse me. Where then does wisdom come? Where's the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and can to the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears, we've heard a report of it. We don't know where it is. We don't know anything about it. Thankfully, God knows wisdom. God knows wisdom. God understands his way, verse 23, and he knows its place. Wait a minute. Is he, is he telling us where it is then? Because God knows where it is, right? He knows its way and he knows the place. Where's the treasure map? How do we find this wisdom? He looks. How, how do we know he knows? Well, he looks to the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. Nothing is hidden from him. He knows exactly where everything and every person, every event, where everything is. Let me tell you about his power. Verse 26, 27, I think. When he set weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and recounted it. He established it and also searched it out. Y'all able to do that? Are you all all able to set weight to wind? You know that wind is a is, is weightless in terms of its substance. Even I guess if you did weigh it, the, the particles in the air, you'd get some measure of of mass to it. But the, the the force of wind. Remember that wind that came around Job's children's house and just destroyed the whole thing. Do you know how weighty, how powerful, how how strong wind can be? Yeah, God put that weight to it. What about waters? He meted out waters by measure. What about the waters? Not just a cup of water or a glass of water or even a, a lake of water, but how about all the water on the earth? He said, this far and no farther shall you come. He's going to say that in Job 38. He says, I've set a boundary. The water cannot transgress or, or violate my boundaries that I put upon it. God set a limit for the rain. He says, this much rain is going to fall and not a, a, a little drop more. 
and he he he's the one that controls these things. We think, oh, we've got it all figured out. We can seed clouds now. Let me tell you, God is the one. He has set a limit for the rain. And what about the thunderbolt? It's so powerful, so destructive. God set its course. God is the one who established the, the path of the thunderbolt. Okay, goes up, right? Anyway, the, he, he did that. He is powerful over all these things. He, look, notice these, these four different ways he says. He saw it. Get my numbers. He saw it. He recounted it. He established it. He searched it out. In other words, God's got it figured out from beginning to end. Everything about it, God knows. He's figured it out. Verse 28 is that last statement. And this, by the way, is the first time in this whole book where God has spoken to man. This is God himself speaking. This is God responding in Job's mouth, of course. But God himself is speaking. And these are his own words. Not to say that the rest of Job isn't God's word, but for him speaking directly, like he did back in chapters 1 and chapter 2. Well, what does God say? What does God say to man? To all people, everywhere. What, what's the solution? Kind of like, if you don't mind, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. What is it? Um, Solomon, preacher, you've told us all these kind of weird stuff and the futility of life, but what is it about? It's about this. Fear God and keep his commandments. This applies to everybody. It's not just those super spiritual. It's not just those Israelites. It's not just those whatever. It's everybody. This applies to everybody. For God will bring every matter to judgment, whether it's good, whether it's evil. What is this about? God says, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Huh. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil, that's understanding. You want the place of wisdom. You want the place of the path to understanding. This is it. It's fearing me, turning away from evil, being a holy person in my sight. He is speaking about very practical things here, practical things that Job has practiced, if you don't mind the duplication, that are part and parcel of his life. Fearing God was one of the key definitions, key attributes of his life, that he did have that fear of God, which has a lot of components, a lot of different aspects. It's kind of like a fine diamond. You, you look at it from different perspectives, you see a, another kind of aspect or whatever. I don't know what the, can't remember the, the term for that. Uh, but you, you see the fear of God has a sense of terror of abject horror at the, the glory of God. You know, hide me from God's glory. It has that, but that's not all that it has. Because remember, Exodus 20, verse 20, Moses said to the people, you know, you speak to us, you be intermediary. And he says, God wants, he doesn't want you to fear him, but he wants the fear of him to remain in you so that you may not sin. So there's a, a difference between an abject horror kind of fear and the fear that God does want that, that prevents us from sinning. And that is that fear. If you don't mind, some other ways to define this fear of the Lord is that we would obey him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We see that even love, obedience, fear, these are all ideas of what does it mean to fear God. It is this idea also of, of uh, clinging to him. Uh, he's saying, he's my life. I, there's no other life apart from him. That's what the disciples said to him. You know, oh, you alone have the words of eternal life. Realizing God himself is our sufficiency. He is our identity. We rest in him. If you don't mind, trust, belief, faith is just resting wholly in God and his person and his work. We trust him. We adore him. We worship him. We are humble before him. We honor him. And in, in other words, when we have this affirmation, like my father-in-law would say, God is big and we're small. God is over and we are under. That's it. That's wisdom. That is so powerful wisdom. And yet so many people think it got it upward. No, we're big. We're the ones in charge. We've got it all figured out. And God is a, is a figment of our imagination, some kind of a thing that people, you know, weak, and, weak and, and helpless people kind of contrive and think about because they just can't manage their own weakness. And we're really, we're the powerful ones. No, no, that is foolishness. You want wisdom? God is big, we're small. God is over, we are under. This fear of God. By the way, a little tidbit. It says the fear of the Lord. That word Lord is the word Adonai. I think this is the only place, let me just go check my notes here, that this fear of the Lord, fear of Adonai, is it's really the only place where that phrase is used. Usually we see fear of God, Elohim, or we see fear of Yahweh a lot of times, or fearing Yahweh. But this term, fearing the Lord, fearing the master, fearing the ruler, is, I think, 
if I'm confirming correctly, that that's the only place where we see it. That is wisdom. And then turning away from evil, turning away from things that, okay, here's the deal. With evil, evil is deceptive. And evil promises great, wonderful things. This is life, you know, big, big signs, right? And these you know, big light signs that are, are saying this is the way to life and it's a way to death. Evil has a moral aspect to it that it is you know, evil, bad, wicked, that kind of thing. It is reprehensible. You look at it and think, oh, that's disgusting. It is false versus what is true. God himself is true. Evil is false. It lies to you, lies to your face even. And you think, well, no, I, I'm able to discern between right and wrong, good and evil. No, you're not. Apart from fearing God, you will be hoodwinked, you will be tracked, trapped, excuse me, and, and taken away, bound and captive uh, to evil and the judgment that befalls the wicked. Ultimately, what is evil is of little worth. It, there's nothing to it. It is deceptive. It promises what it never gives, and it gives what it never did promise. Wait a minute, where's, what's the fine print on this? I didn't realize that this was really going to come to me. I thought I was getting this deal over here. No, you got death, destruction, eternal judgment from God. That's what you wanted. That's what you chose. You'd better fear God keep his commandments, turn away from evil. That is understanding. This idea of understanding is discernment. It is being able to distinguish between right and wrong, good and evil, left and right. It is a, a, a cutting discernment. This is something that we say, no, this is the way we ought to walk. This is how we ought to live. And Job says, let me tell you, you friends, you are just full of hot air. You know nothing, absolutely nothing. Let me instruct you. Let me tell you, you better fear God because he is wisdom. He is that which we aspire to, that which we yearn for, that which is the fulfillment of our souls. You're trying to control God, explain him. It's false. It's wrong. You're going to be examined for it, and God will find you faulty. Last verse. We're going to jump back to our study in Colossians chapter 2. Where is wisdom found? It is in Christ himself. Colossians 2 and verses 2 and 3. Paul wants all of his people, all of his saints, to have their hearts encouraged even unto the wealth of the full assurance of understanding, unto the full knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all of wisdom and knowledge. You want wisdom, you come to wisdom by finding it in Christ alone, finding him your sufficiency, finding him your life, our identity, our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ is revealed, it will also be revealed with him in glory. That's what we expect, that's what we look for. But to find satisfaction in faulty philosophy, you're trying to explain the world based on our own observation, the powers of our, our intellect and so forth. No. Look to God. You need divine revelation. You've got to find a wisdom outside of your own self. You're not big enough. You don't know enough. You're not powerful enough. You can't do this by yourself. Look to the wisdom, particularly as it comes through Christ. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for this message from your word and especially this message at the end, the fear of the Lord is wisdom and a turn from evil is understanding please help us to do these things help us to look to you for as our life as our identity and to realize apart from you we have nothing we should expect nothing of advantage only disaster and destruction and condemnation again we pray you save any who aren't valuing you loving christ adoring him finding their whole being wrapped up in his glory please sanctify us help us to be more like our lord we're just grateful Thank you. Amen.